morning, everybody. And I just want to start by saying that I received uh, some stern correction from our boss on the tech team for my handwritten notes and notepad and leafing to find my place. So I've decided to get with the program, represent the tech team a little better, and I'll be using my iPad this morning. So if anything goes wrong, blame Jonathan Moen. Uh, he made me do it. <laughs> now, if, like me, you were raised in a church which both values young people and children and sees the importance of God's Word, then you will have undoubtedly been saturated from no age in stories from the Old Testament. You're the kind of person who feels a smug excitement when you're watching the chase and a question about the Bible comes up because I know that one. And you conveniently forget the 10 that went before that you didn't know. The slight problem that I have uh, or have found with this is that if I'm honest, I kind of tend to maintain those childish views of those stories that I had. And what I want to do this morning is to go back to one of those stories and try and leave behind the pop-up picture Bible version that I loved so much as a child because the reality is that these heroes of the faith that we learn about are perhaps a little more earthy and broken and unsanitized than we might expect. And this morning, I want to look at one such Old Testament hero of mine, one that I particularly loved as a child, and that's Gideon. And I hope that as we do so, we will get an adult perspective on this hero. And in so doing, we might learn some important lessons and most importantly, realize who the true hero of the story is all along. So turn with me, please, to Judges chapter 6, and we're going to begin to read at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belongs to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered him, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, Give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will await your return. Gideon went inside and prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff that was in his hand. 
and flame flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign and Lord, I have seen the, the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. And to this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, Who has done this? When they carefully investigated, they were told that Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded that Joash bring out his son, because he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside him. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for Baal or for him shall be put to death by the morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. The first thing that I want us to see today about Gideon was his rather pitiful starting position. When we first meet Gideon, where is he to be found? In a wine press threshing wheat. Now, you don't need to be a linguist, a farmer, or a wine connoisseur to know that threshing wheat in a wine press is not exactly the normal way. In fact, I would argue that a wine press is a pretty terrible place to thresh wheat. In case you're unaware of the process, as I was and had to look into it, threshing wheat involves shaking the wheat and then throwing it in the air. The wind then would blow away the chaff or the stalks that you don't want and the heavier kernels would fall to the ground and you could gather them up. Now a wine press, which is basically a high-sided bathtub for want of a better uh, way of putting it, doesn't have great airflow and I imagine would make the process very difficult. So why is Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press? for fear of the Midianites. The Midianites were a fierce and oppressive people from that, whom, that God was using as an instrument of judgment upon Israel. They would regularly raid their lands, steal their wealth, and take their food. Secondly, we hear of his humble origins. When the angel of the Lord appears and greets him as a mighty warrior and tells him how he will deliver Israel from the evils of Midian, I suspect Gideon believed this was the divine equivalent of dialing a wrong number. Essentially, he replies, um, pardon me, my Lord, but my tribe is actually the smallest in all of Manasseh, and I am the least among that clan. How could I possibly be Israel's savior? Words very reminiscent of Moses before the burning bush. And thirdly, we see an act of faith, albeit small and skeptical. Gideon, wanting to check the authority of this messenger of God, 
makes a plea that the angel not leave him before he has a chance to make an offering to God. The angel agrees and Gideon hurries off to his home to prepare an offering to the Lord. When he brings it back, the angel instructs him to lay it on a rock nearby. The angel then touches the offering with the tip of his staff and at once it is consumed by fire. Then the angel disappears from his sight and Gideon is left flabbergasted and fearful at what he has just witnessed. So we see Gideon's pitiful position, his humble origins, and his small and skeptical faith. These alone don't make for a great hero, and certainly not much of a story. But I want us to see something really important in this section before we move on, because Gideon is not the main character in this story. For you see, God is at work throughout this entire encounter. Yes, we see Gideon's pitiful position, cowering in a wine press in fear, trying his best simply to scrape together enough food to survive. But we also see the angel of the Lord stepping into that wine press to meet Gideon in his helplessness. He doesn't come to Gideon to rub his nose in his misery, which he could rightly have, rightly have done so, because Israel's position was entirely of its own making. God had warned them when they moved into the promised land not to take the gods and practices of those around about them. And as we see, it was Gideon's own father's altar to Baal and Asherah pole. But no, God humbles himself to come to Gideon in that wine press. And yes, we see Gideon's humble origins, the smallest man from the smallest clan. But yet this angel gives Gideon a glimpse of what God can do with him if he has the faith to see it. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And thirdly, we see God's patience with Gideon. Gideon's response to the appearing of this angel and the mighty promises of God that he brings is not to joyfully commit himself to the plan, but rather to test the words that he has given. Firstly, he asks the angel to wait. Always a brave move to ask the angel of the Most High God to wait for you, let alone wait so that I can test what you've just told me. But how gracious a God we have, and he agrees to Gideon's request and waits for the return with his humble offering. And finally, in this section, we see God's power displayed and Gideon's calling confirmed as the angel touches the sacrifice and it is at once consumed by fire. At this point, the penny finally drops for Gideon. He realizes just who is speaking to him. And at this point, he fears for his very life, but because, or sorry, he fears for the very life, his very life because he has seen the face of the angel of the Lord. And as we know from the Old Testament, anyone who saw God would surely die. But God graciously comforts him. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And so we have seen Gideon's pitiful position and how God steps in to meet him where he was. We have seen his humble origins, the weakest man from the smallest clan, met with a mighty vision of what he could be in God's hands, a mighty warrior and the saviour of his people. We have seen his small and sceptical offering of faith met by divine patience and accepted by divine grace. And we have seen how his calling was confirmed by divine power as his sacrifice was consumed by the fire. 
But now comes time for the rubber to hit the road for Gideon. That night, the Lord gives him his first assignment as Israel's new savior. He is to go and destroy his father's altar of Baal and the Asherah pole that is next to it. He is then to make a sacrifice or an altar to the Lord in its place and use the very wood of the Asherah pole to make a sacrifice to God there. And so Gideon does what the Lord commands him, but with one small caveat. He is so afraid of his family and the men of his town that he does it under the cover of darkness. Early the next morning, the men, having figured out that it was Gideon who had done this, go to find him. And they don't find him standing proudly beside the altar that he has built, admiring the sacrifice that he has made to the Lord. They find him hiding again in his father's house. And his father, being a cunning man, addresses the bloodthirsty mob and basically tells them, let Baal fight his own battles. If he is a god after all, can't he get his own back on this Gideon? The mob appear satisfied at this response, but give Gideon a new name, Jerobal, which means let Baal contend against him. I suspect this was initially intended as somewhat of a marking of Gideon's card, but in the long run and in the Lord's hands, it actually served as a sign to the people of Baal's impotence. He could not contend with anyone. Here we see Gideon's first, albeit timid and faltering steps towards God's calling on his life. He is still far from the mighty warrior the angel initially addressed him as, but he is no longer cowering in the wine press. I want to stop at this point to make some brief applications to us here in Belfast in the 21st century. Firstly, surely we must start by acknowledging our own pitiful position and humble origins before we encountered the Lord. Sons of Adam, born in sin, and more than happy to bear out the family resemblance. Like Gideon, we too needed God to come and meet us where we were, admittedly not hiding in a wine press, but perhaps you were found hiding in your career, your family life, or perhaps even just your own sense of accomplishment and pride. God comes to us and addresses us as sons, he invites us to become his ambassadors here on earth and live in his service with his might and power at our disposal. Like Gideon, we too surely balk at the idea initially. How could I ever be worthy of such a title, such a position? I am a nobody from nowhere important. But as Patrick reminded us last week, it is God who will make us what he has called us to be. When God calls us to service and sonship, he says to us as he did to Gideon, am I not sending you? As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak and in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Like Gideon, we too must respond to God's calling on our lives with faith, and oftentimes our first response of faith is very like Gideon's, small, 
and sceptical. For many believers, their initial faith response to God's call on their lives is not exactly to sign up to life on the mission field. Fallen as we are, and often failing to clearly see God's hand at work in our lives, we are often doubting like Gideon and feel the need to test the promises God gives to us. As he was with Gideon, so God is also patient to us. He knows and remembers that as the psalmist says, we are but dust. That is why he graciously gives us his spirit to live within us, to work in our hearts and to reassure us of his love and companionship. And our calling like Gideon's is not given without a demonstration of God's power. No, we don't see an offering of meat and bread burned up before us, spectacular as that might be to witness. We have a sign that is much greater than that. We have the very resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit to vindicate our calling and adoption. Turn back to Judges, and we're going to start reading again at chapter 7. And I'm beginning to feel like the writer to the Hebrews when he says in chapter 11 that time would fail to tell of Gideon. <clears throat> By way of brief context in the section that we've skipped, Midian and all of its allies have rallied together to crush and subdue Israel once and for all. But Gideon, clothed with the Spirit of God, raises the army of Israel to go and meet them. And once again, God has shown his provision for Gideon in that this nobody from Manasseh has been able to summon the armies of Israel under his banner to fight against the Midianite invaders. But not only that, we have yet another indication of Gideon's faltering and God's immense patience with the whole fleece debacle, and I'm sure you know about it. So chapter 7, reading as far as 23, verse 23. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord said to him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give you the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up and go down against the camp because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, Go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he said. A round loaf of barley came tumbling into the Midianite camp, 
It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guards. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethshitta, towards Zerahah, and as far as the border of Abel Meholah, near Tabah, knew that would catch me. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Now we are getting to the story of Gideon that everyone remembers. Gideon and the 300 who would save Israel from the hand of Midian. The core messages of this story are not hard to see, but I want to spell them out just in case we might miss them. Firstly, God will share his glory with nobody. Gideon has gathered an army, a rather impressive 32,000 men. Doubtless still vastly outnumbered by the Midianite horde gathered on the other side of the valley, but a large fighting force nonetheless. God speaks to Gideon, however, and says no. There are too many men here, and that runs the risk that they might believe they are entitled to some of the glory that comes from the victory. God will not have this, not now and not ever. He will never share his glory with mere men. And to our twisted ears, this might sound arrogant and, dare I say, even sinful. Doesn't God tell us to be humble? This is because in our sinful state, we can't fully appreciate that God is the only one worthy of all the glory. There is none beside him and none that he should share even one iota of glory with. The truth is that men are continuously repeating Adam's sin and that of Satan before him, thinking they might be entitled to some of that which belongs to God alone. And so he cuts Gideon's force down to a mere 300 men which for the mathematicians out there is less than 1% of what he started with. Surely nobody would be so foolish as to believe that without divine intervention, 300 men could destroy battle-hardened Midianite armies, so vast they're described as a swarm of locusts with camels numbering more than the sand of the seashore. Absolutely not. This was God's battle and God's victory. Gideon and his 300 men were nothing but the sword in his hand, nothing in and of themselves without his expert hand wielding them. Our second core message is that God's power is most clearly displayed in human weakness. 
God does not choose anyone who believes they are self-sufficient or their own saviour. That is because such thinking robs them of the opportunity to see God at work in their lives as the true saviour. Suppose Gideon had decided that he wanted to keep his 32,000 men. After all, he was Jeroboam. He had gone toe-to-toe with a god, and it was the god who became kindling. Surely with his skilled leadership and reputation, his army could put Midian to flight. But thankfully, Gideon knew better than that. He trusted in God, and he sent 31,700 men packing home to safety. Why did he do this? Because Gideon had come to see that victory and safety don't come from being surrounded by the best men, but by being held by the Most High God. As a result, we witness one of the greatest military upsets the world has ever seen, as 300 men drive off and slaughter an army so much greater than themselves. The third key point is that God does not require skillfulness, only willfulness. We have covered in detail already how Gideon, by any human job spec, was the worst possible candidate as Israel's saviour. But Gideon had one very important thing going for him. He was willing to listen to what God asked him to do, and with some divine encouragement and reassurance, to go and actually do it. He was asked to destroy the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole. And while, yes, he did it at cover of night, he still did it, undoubtedly knowing it could cost him his life. When the Spirit of God clothed him and the armies of Israel rallied to his side, he made preparations without hesitation to go to war with one of the greatest armies ever assembled. Yes, he may have asked for a sign or two to settle his doubting mind, but he still obeyed God. And when God ordered him to take away the security that 32,000 men afforded him and send 99% of them packing, once again Gideon obeyed. Through his willingness to trust that God could and would do what he promised, Midian was defeated and Israel was saved. My final key lesson that I think we can learn from this is how God will reassure, sustain and encourage his people as they step out in faith for him. We've already seen that Gideon was a bit of a doubter. I suspect if he was in the upper room, he would have been standing alongside Thomas, asking to see and touch the holes in Christ's hands and side. But God was immensely gracious to him, and on every occasion settled his doubts with divine reassurance. And even on the very edge of his great victory, Gideon begins to get cold feet. So God instructs him to sneak down to the Midianite camp and listen to the guards at the outpost. And I love this encounter because there's just, there's no way this was a conversation that happened without divine influence. Stop and think about it for a second. Random pagan guard number one. Yeah, so basically I had this dream last night and see that big hill over there? Yeah, this giant loaf comes down and just smashes us all to pieces. Pagan guard number two. Oh, of course that can only mean one thing. This is the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash the Israelite. And God has given the Midianites and this entire camp into his hands. (laughs) This is just not a conversation the two random pagan guards at an outpost have, unless God is behind it. And so whether it was the consuming of his offering by fire, the wetting or drying of a fleece, or by putting words in the mouths of pagan soldiers, God encouraged and sustained his man on the ground. And I want to close today again by just applying these four messages to us today, and I will be brief. 
Is it not true today that God will still not share any of his glory with anyone else? Consider the whole gospel. What do we contribute to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary? And on the other side of salvation, what do we have to offer the world except that which we were given by him? How could we ever seek to steal the glory for ourselves? We don't deserve it and he won't share it. And is it not also true that God's power is still most clearly displayed in our weakness? If we try to be our own saviour, trying to keep the glory for ourselves, we will miss out on experiencing the power of God in our lives. Consider your salvation. God's saving power and grace is only available to us when we lower our hands and stop trying to do it ourselves. It is only when we finally acknowledge our weak and pitiful state that he can save us and make something of us. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians, or as Paul reminds his readers again in 2 Corinthians, my power is made perfect in weakness. Is it not still true that God does not require anything of us but willingness to obey? Consider every missionary you've ever heard of who did anything for the kingdom of God. I suspect there is only one common characteristic that links them all, a willingness to listen to the voice of God and do what he says. Great speaker, well-educated, funny, a natural leader, enough about me. It doesn't mean anything if you're not willing and ready to do what God calls you to do. Does the dread of public speaking make you pray for the ground to swallow you up? Are you poorly educated? Not what many would consider the sharpest tool in the box. Can't tell a joke to save your life and find that you struggle to inspire and motivate others. I have good news for you. You can still be a person whose life makes such waves here on earth that they will echo out through the entirety of eternity. How? By giving yourself willingly to the one who made everything and asking him to do whatever he wants with you and with your life. And it is also true that in everything God calls us to do for him, he will supply your every need, both physical and spiritual. And I hasten to add your every need, not every want. Be that through physical means, like Gideon's 300 men, or encouragement for our souls like that pagan soldier's dream. I am always struck when I hear an older missionary speaking about their time on the mission field and how God never let them down. Times when it was literally life or death, God would have to provide or the project would fail. And time and time again, God provides what is needed. It's almost like Paul meant it when he said in Philippians that God could supply their every need. I know that far too often I am guilty of trying to rob some of that glory for myself, that I'm guilty of trying to do it myself, that I have the resources to do what I need to do in this life. But the truth is that in doing that, so often I forfeit the opportunity to witness God's power and provision in my life. And it's so much better than anything I could provide for myself. It's my prayer for all of us that we would learn what it means to be like Gideon, to be taken by God from the man cowering in the winepress, the weakest man from the smallest clan, to become God's mighty warrior. As Patrick reminded us last week, if we are believers here today, that is what we already are. But we are to become more like it every day. 
And the way that we do that is by believing God's promise that he will help us if we are just willing to let him. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.